0: Welcome to This Week in Tennis, my name is Phil Nasons, he's Craig Doyle, and we're here to talk tennis with you this week. What's happening, Craig?
1: Yeah, it's a busy week, um, I took my eye off the ball for a second, and it seems like on the tennis front everything's happening. I mean, usually we get to the US Open, we finish the US Open, and we, uh, we're scratching for topics to talk about, but not this week, right?
0: Oh, we got a lot to talk about this week. Win Daily Sports is where I do my tennis touts, Craig. And I'm on a roll again, fourteen and zero, just killing it like usual. And Sloane Stevens showed up, and I actually touted her to win against Camila Giorgi, and she should have won, but she got smoked. She did her little pirouette, she flashed her smile, and disappeared quickly. Does that surprise you?
1: Ah, uh, no. I mean, Sloane <laughs> Stevens has already made it, hasn't she? She's made it to the top. She's big time now. <laughs> you so, think? So, you know, it doesn't matter if she loses in the first round. <laughs> in, in Japan, of all places. But she
0: was complaining of jet lag three days ago, but it didn't stop her from going shopping every day. Uh, you know what? A lot of people are speculating that maybe she was there only to pick up a hefty appearance fee, plan her wedding, shop for her wedding, and disappear. Sounds about right.
1: (laughs) That's the beauty of the world, too, isn't it? You get to go to all these fantastically exotic locations, uh, Japan, wherever you want to go.
0: And someone else's nickel, too.
1: Well, it is, you know, and we've we've not really chatted about it a lot on this show. And uh, I think I've heard a few people on Twitter give me a little bit of stick because... I've got a thing against Alexander Zverev, but he does the same thing. This kid gets a huge appearance fee. He gets $400,000 to turn up to some of these small tournaments. You know, $400,000, you don't get that, you know, at, at big tournaments unless you get to the second week. You've you got to get to the quarterfinals to get that kind of money, but he gets it just for turning up. So, you know, good and Sloan Stevens. If she can get a $100,000, $200,000 just to turn up, losing the first round, it is what it is.
0: Yeah, but that would be a tournament director's nightmare, though. Because you want them playing toward the end of the week, not losing on Wednesday nights.
1: Yeah, well, you, you pay the money because you, you're putting out that star name to draw tickets in for the semifinals and the finals, aren't you? That's that's why you're paying the big money out to these star acts if they lose in the first round. You know, you, you're not going to get your money back. You're not going to get it back on the gate. You're not going to get it back from the player. I mean, I think the only player I know who who does something like that have, that I've heard of in the past has been Rafael Nadal when he's been uh, come to Queen's Club. He's had a, a hefty appearance fee, and he's just waived the fee if he's lost in the first round, and he's uh, stood there and apologized for it.
0: Yeah, it's called integrity.
1: Well, we know he's a good guy, don't we? We he's do. That that's it. Year.
0: That's yeah. But we're not saying that Sloane Stephens isn't a good person. Well, maybe we could. I mean, but we're not going to. But the thing is, is that. She did disappear quickly. She didn't offer much resistance either. And Camilla Gheorghe, you know, she's had her own issues with folks, or her father has. And, you know, I, I, God bless her. She, she won. She got a big scalp. Now she's 3-2 and two lifetime over Sloane Stevens. And I, I think there probably are a few people who can boast a winning record. But if we look back on it, I wonder how many of those are first-round exits.
1: That's the thing, isn't it? You know, <laughs> a lot of a lot, lot of tournaments, a lot of smaller tournaments, and uh, especially once the 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 US Open's passed, and you know this, um, this sort of trip out to the far east where they go to India, they go to Singapore, Malaysia, China, Japan, all these places. I, I don't think the motivation's there for a lot of players because you're not playing for slams anymore. There's not another slam until january that's you know it's a good four months away after the us open final i think a lot of these players look at it as a a sort of cruise almost like an off-season exhibition uh set of tournaments they just cruise over there they play a few tournaments they pick up some cash they have a little bit of fun um the only folks really you know focused on on these tournaments are the the players who come from these areas and the players who are desperate for points to try and make the tour finals
0: Well, that's just it, and and Sloan Stevens isn't going to make the tour finals probably, so hey, why not uh, go there, pick up some bread, go buy the latest electronic gadgets you can find, eat a little free sushi, and disappear with a big, big paycheck, but the gamblers are pissed at her.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a dangerous game for gambling this time of year at tennis. You, you, you can make a lot of money, but you can very, very quickly lose your money betting on someone who would have been a banker um, if we had gone back to, like, April, May time in the clay court season when everyone's trying to get informed for Roland Garros or Wimbledon or, you know, whatever. The, you would you would bet on these players and you would win. At this time of year, you got to be real careful who you back.
0: Well, you ain't lying there, but fortunately for... Win Daily Sports subscribers. The Flash is on the case, and they're making cash with The Flash, and that is a big thing. And, you know, the interesting thing, though, Craig, is that she's gotten a new coach, right, or her old coach, and was supposed to straighten everything out, but she seems to have regressed.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean – is that much different to most of these girls? You know, all these girls who've come up, they've won a Grand Slam or they've got their Grand Slam final. They've got to that Queen of the Mountain status and then all of a sudden they've got knocked off the perch and they're like, well, I've been there. I've made some cash. Uh, I'm, I'm set for life, you know. Uh, that's how it is. You know, the, the attitude, the desire to, to keep winning. We, we talked about it last week a little bit with Serena Williams and some of the chat there. and There's not a lot of girls out there these days who are built with the mentality to win at tennis they're built with this mentality to build a sort of brand name for themselves and then once they've got enough money they're they're quite happy just to to roll along there's no desire for them to hit the gym every morning to hit the practice courts for hours um working on their game the, the desire just sort of disappears and they know they're able to coast along somewhere inside the top 40 and they're on the meal ticket and yeah, those are good points too naomi osaka two-time grand slam winner
0: she just parted ways with her second coach in the last year what in the world is going on with this young lady i wonder i, I can't figure it out
1: uh, is it the case that she's like going to try look for a quick fix like you know she feels like she's fallen off the wagon she has um, in terms of tennis and she just wants some sort of quick fix to get herself back in, in business. Um, maybe she she's picked up coaches and she, she's just not getting the results she thought she was going to get. She's not playing the kind of tennis she thought she was going to get. So she's just going to cycle another coach out and bring another one in. Um, and you and I are going to agree on this when I say it's pretty unsavory business and who's going to want to coach someone for you know six months and then be... Back on the scrap heap, not many people. But mm-hmm. you know, maybe those guys out there, um, and you're you're gonna tell me there are oh, there'll be guys out there who'll be ready to jump on the chance, uh, you know, in the hope of getting some success with Osaka and building a name for themselves.
0: And that could happen too. But Jermaine Jenkins was the guy who was supposed to fix the fix the lull after winning the Australian Open, her second consecutive Grand Slam major, and apparently that didn't work. She doesn't look happy on the tennis court. She hasn't looked happy on the tennis court for a very long time. And it's odd, you know, that she, I mean, it's not odd. It's actually normal for them to dump coaches for whatever reason. The end of the day, though, is she got upset with him, apparently, because of how she played at the recent U.S. Open, where she didn't go very far. Now, how much of that is her fault and how much of that is the coach's fault?
1: I think it's 100% her own fault. You know, you're the one out there hitting the balls. Sure, you're going to... And let's be honest, this is where you're going to take over the conversation. You can go on the practice court with one of your players, and you can go through tactics, you can go through technique. But, you know, most of these players at this level, the technique's not an issue. They're all able to strike the ball really well. They're all able to play a variety of shots. It's more tactical. Um, you can go through all the tactics you want, but when the player goes out there and fails to execute... Or worse, the player goes out there and they've got to switch tactics mid-match. And so you're not able to go and coach that to them from the stand. You know, they want to blame you. And that's a culture of sports, I guess. But individual sports, it's easy to sort of try and point the finger at a coach or a trainer or at anyone effectively but yourself, you know. Because you can't sub yourself off. We said it last week. You can't sub yourself off. So, you know, you got to blame someone else. And
0: that's what happens
1: usually. You know, the interesting
0: thing is, is if you coach a team sport, you don't work for the pl- Well, I guess the NBA, you work for the players. But in most cases, you work for the club, the president and the general manager of the club. In tennis, you work for the player. And yeah, it's not fun. And when you're out there on the practice court, and you can do that till you're blue in the face. Tell them to do this. Tell them to do that. Tell them to do a 100 different things or even one different thing. And if they don't execute it, It's on the coach for whatever reason. Now, I wouldn't think someone would need extra motivation for a $5 million purse. But apparently they do. Because Osaka, she just looks miserable. I watched her play in Japan, and she looks miserable when she plays. Miserable. Like she doesn't want to be there. And, And how is that the coach's fault?
1: And this is after she fired Jermaine. Yeah, it's not. You no, know, In my opinion, it's not the coach's fault. As you said, they, they work for the player. If the player's going to pay out the money to the coach, and yeah, sure, the player has the entitlement to part ways with the coach. It's it's their money. It's their choice, as we say, in the business. But uh, I just think of Osaka. I, I'm going to go throw this one down to you. She's played a lot of tennis, you know, it's at a high level. And I, I think she's really young still. And I think she might just be suffering a little bit of burnout. A lot of the expectation on her shoulders to deliver every week, and it's not just to play in the tennis part. It's going around and signing the autographs, doing the media commitments. She never struck me as having that kind of upfront personality where she loved all that sort of stuff. She was kind of a little bit shy, a little bit reserved. She she did, she's not really used to that sort of thing, and I, I think she's just kind of got a little bit burned out. And we in our first podcast back, we talked a little bit about Coco Golf. And I think, you know, that's what you got to protect her from. You, you can't keep putting her out there every single week, run her into the ground with the expectations that she's going to start winning things, signing all the autographs, doing all you know, the, the kids' events, appearing on, you know, media event day type things. It'll run run the kid down. And I, I think you're already seeing a lot of that with Osaka. I think she's just struggling with the pace of the tour at, the, at that top end where the focus is on her all the time where she goes somewhere and she's one of the key stars I, I, I think she really really liked it when she was a bit more of an underdog she wasn't a big name on everyone's lips and she was able to sort of get on with business without having to take care of business off the court
0: you know those are all good points too you know something uh, i think you're right too one of the biggest problems is it's easier to be the hunter than the hunted And she went from hunter to hunted overnight, essentially. And I had, you know, not many people even knew who she was until she defeated Serena Williams at last year's US Open. So, what you have, honestly, is a girl who, yeah, very shy and maybe not used to it. But if she wants to continue to play tennis at that level, she had better get used to it real quick. But again, what does that have to do with her coach? Nothing. You know she can't handle the pressure, for whatever reason, and her coach ends up losing her job because she can't cut it. You know that's the hardest part about the coaching thing, and that's why you have to be very careful about who you are coaching. You made a great point when you said somebody will step right up, and somebody will, but it will will it be the best person for Naomi Osaka though? More than likely, no, because. You don't want to coach someone. She's fired two coaches in within twelve months. Actually, six months. What is your job security? You better have a damn good contract if you're going to take that job.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure she's not giving that You know, multiple year contracts that she's paying out on either. Well, she should. I mean, that's the only way I would take that job.
0: I, I just don't get it, but whatever. And so you have these girls bouncing coaches left and right, and, and they keep losing. You know, I, I just don't get it. it. It it's not your coach's fault. I mean, you're the one who hired him. In, in fact, I mean, he must have been okay six months ago because she lost. And again, she looks disa- She just looks like a disaster on the tennis court. That little thing she did with uh, Coco Golf it might have tugged some hearts. But you got to be a killer at that level. And she's not a killer, I don't think.
1: No, she's not. It just fits in with the personality thing that I was talking about a minute ago. She's quite reserved, quite backwards. Um, I think she's gotten to where she's gotten by surprise more than by bullying anyone, by stepping on anyone, as you want, if you want to put it that way. Um, I think now that... People recognize who she is, and they're cautious of who she is. She doesn't have the element of surprise on her side anymore. And those girls out there that are are a lot more ruthless in their pursuit of winning matches and winning slams. That they'll take Osaka out. They'll uh, they'll they'll break her game down. They'll they, they'll let her hit the ball out. They, they, they'll defend better against her. Um, they're just better, more men. Stronger players out there, I think, and I think that's something that's come out over a period of time with Osaka. That there's ways to get her mentally and break her game down mentally that you know you wouldn't see against some other players on the tour who are a lot stronger on on that front. Maybe they don't have the, the big hitting forehand like Osaka does they don't have the aggressive mentality but they're, they're going to be able to find more consistency than Osaka when things go pretty badly for Osaka they do tend to spiral out of control of it
0: yeah those are good points now well, I we wish for the best for her because she is refreshing in a way because she is very honest she talks about the stress she's under every press conference that she does she talks about the pressure and the stress that she's under and maybe it's caving in on her maybe she needs to take a break from the game like uh Ashley Barty did. I mean, maybe that's what it takes for her, but we do wish her the best from this week in tennis. And we're on the subject of coaches. I hate to use the term coach with this guy, but um, Eurosport expert, (laughs) because they let just about anybody be an expert there. Patrick Moratoglu, who is better known as the coach, (laughs) coach, coach of Serena Williams, and he has a couple of kids in his uh, tennis academy that can play pretty well. He had the following thing to say, Craig, and try not to lose it while you listen to this. Patrick Mortaglu Now, this is an interview with a Greek publication called SNA, S-D-N-A. Great publication, by the way. Patrick Mortoglu described the trio, and that trio would be Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, and Novak Djokovic as the greatest players of all time. But still believes younger players have the opportunity to beat them at majors. Go
1: ahead, Craig. Um, has he looked at the recent history of the Grand Slam? Probably not. No, because he. he (laughs) You know,
0: it's funny when you when you bring him when when you watch him, and 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 thankfully he didn't spend a lot of time on air with the ESPN U.S. Open cast, and I'm very appreciative of this. But the more he talks, the less – and this is just to someone who's been around tennis for 46 years – the less he seems to know about the sport.
1: Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if he, he does it just to be kind of controversial or he's trying to open up some sort of debate or get some sort of other TV personality to bite on it. I mean – all you got to do is look at the recent history of the slams and look at the winners. I mean, you can count on one hand the amount of guys that have won a slam recently that's not named Federer, Nadal, or Djokovic. From 2017, I mean, could, 17, Craig? It is, has been just those three.
0: 2016, <laughs> 2016 Wawrinka won. And uh, who was the other one? Del Potro won one time in 2016, I think.
1: Oh, Andy Murray um, won th- Wimbledon in 2016. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, so, so, so even in the last 10 years, you're looking at Wawrinka, Del Potso, Murray, uh, Martin Chilich won one. Um, outside of that, you know, you, you're really, you're, you're struggling going to find anyone else that's going to win a slam. And, you know, we're still at the, I, I, I'm going to go and say, I get a little bit what he says because, like... Roger Federer's lost a couple of matches here and there. The guys at slams. You've seen Rafael Nadal has had a few troubles at Wimbledon over the years. Um, You know, Novak lost at the US Open to Stan Wawrinka, where he's won slams recently. Um, But even then, you know, Who's gonna do, see when you see when you look at betting on one of these guys on an individual match? Do you ever look at their opponent and think, "Yeah, that guy's gonna take Novak Djokovic out in the quarterfinals"? I, I did no. actually. I, we bet on Stan well, and he won, but uh, but <laughs> you did you you did it uh, this time. But mostly no. You did. <laughs>
0: but I did that because Djokovic was hurt.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You no, know, there was a little bit of a reason for it there, but. Uh, but you know, your point other, is, i take re- Is you're right. Why would you
0: look at that? Why would I look? at, say, uh, Stefano Sisipas, for example, in the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open, beating Novak Djokovic or Rafael Nadal or Roger Federer, even though he's beaten each one of those players at different times throughout the year and different times throughout his career, can you beat two of those guys in a row? Because that's what you're going to have to do. And, and that's kind of what Moritago gets around to admitting, finally, after he's already put his foot in his mouth, so to speak.
1: Yeah, well that's where it becomes even more difficult, you know, like taking one of these guys out in the uh, best best out of five sets is, is difficult on its own, I mean, you can get 2-0 up on one of these guys and they'll come back at you, um, but um, to actually then go, you know, two, two days later to play another one of these guys, and you ain't going to win that one, you'll get run into the ground by the first guy and then the second guy will, you know, pick the bones of it and take you out in 3 or 4 sets quite quite comfortably and that's how it's been the last number of years you know, anyone who's taken out a, a Nadal or a Federer or a Djokovic will eventually run into one of the other guys and by the time they get there they, they're usually suffering a little bit from fatigue and they just don't have it to take out another one of the, these guys so to say that these guys are beatable yeah, ok, I'll have that there's there's odd occasions that these guys can be beaten at slams, not very often but uh, normally these guys go up to one of the other three, one of the other uh, guys on that list, and as you just pointed out, you're going to have to beat at least two of them to win a slam, and that's that's real tough. <laughs> yeah, it is. Do you remember Martina Hingis? I do remember Martina Hingis. She's played a lot of doubles since I've been watching, but uh, before that, she was a fantastic singles player as well. I still
0: remember when she lost to Steffi Graf, and I told people I was in a bar. I know that's, you're going to find that hard to believe, but I was in a bar and I said, you know what, that's it for Martina Hingis. She's not going to win another one. Because you could see the, the thing had been cracked. The egg had been cracked and that was it. And, and the one thing that I remember most about Martina, when this big babe tennis thing started coming rolling along, is when she played, I think, it was, I think she played uh, Serena Williams in the semifinals of the Australian Open. And then she had to play uh, Jennifer Capriotti in the final of the Australian Open. And I told my friend Scott, I said, dude, she's not going to be able to keep up with this issue because two nights in a row of big bang of tennis, she won't be able to handle it. And that's the same thing that's happening now. You, got, you made a perfect point. One of them runs you to death and the other one just destroys you because you've got nothing left after you... If you go four or five sets with a Rafael Nadal or a Novak Djokovic or a Roger Federer, you went through hell, and then you got to turn around and do it again two days later or a day later or whatever it is. That that's just ain't fun. And and Mortoglu, I guess he's right. You know, it's, it, they are they are beatable. Obviously, they are. We saw two of them fall before the finals this year alone at the U.S. Open. But you can't beat them on successive days and it's not going to happen for a while but if there was a couple of players out there, Craig, just off the top of your head, we don't even if you can't think of one, forget it. We'll just move on. But is there anyone out there you think can do that?
1: Uh Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of guys out there, I mean, this Medvedev kid, he looks like he's got some game, you know, I think, like, maybe within the next year or so, I think he can maybe do something, I think if he could be bothered, Nick Kyrgios might be able to cause some damage, because he's got such a big game, and he's so unpredictable in what he does, Um, outside of that, yeah, maybe on the clay, Dominic Team on the clay is quite interesting, I think uh, Rafael Nadal is such a problem for him because Nadal just does everything Team does but better. But uh, you know, if he has a lucky day, he might be able to get rid of Nadal and then you know, it's game on against one of the other guys. Um, you know, over the years, you, you've obviously you've seen likes of done it. Murray's had a go at doing it. Those guys have been relatively successful in doing it. Del Potro's done it, but he's finished. You know, he's he's not going to be the same player that he was before. Um, other than you guys, though, it's 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 tough to say. You know, like, I don't see, like, uh, Alexander Zverev at the minute. Yeah, sure, he might do it in uh, best of three sets. He's got the game that best of three sets is, is sort of favorable to what he does. I don't see him going out of a, in a slam and and taking out, you know, Federer, then Djokovic. It's, it's just not going to happen at the minute. Um, but yeah, yeah.
0: You got to have some heart to do that. You got to be a bit crazy, too, because you're knocking down legends, you know. You got to be crazy, because... And the other thing that people don't maybe realize is that you have the crowd against you. Unless you're in your home Grand Slam, you're going to have the crowd against you because everybody and their mother wants to see these guys win over and over and over again. I don't know why they do. Maybe because, you know, at least two of them have held themselves up to be pretty classy guys. Rafael Doll, head and tails above all of them, I would think. But you're right. Who's done it? Grand Slam winners have done it. Andy Murray. Warinka, Del Potro, Silich did it. So it can be done, but these young guys, I think these young guys are more interested in chasing after uh, appearance fees and playing in far out of the way places where they don't have to compete very hard and then just disappear when they're ready. I think that's what they're more interested in doing because I think, now I can't say this for sure, but I think. They've gotten it in their heads that these guys are invincible unless just wait around until they're gone and then we can kind of get in there. But I like that Medvedev kid, dude. I like him a lot. In fact, I thought he would have gave. I thought he could have beaten Rafael Nadal if he'd have made a couple different ideas or had a different thoughts in that fifth set. But it is what it is. And you brought up two out of three sets, Greg. You did that for a reason. A perfect segue.
1: Yeah, you'd think I read the script for the show that we don't follow or something like that. Well, at
0: least we try to follow. I mean, we have an idea, but we just don't know when we're going to do it, if we're going to do it. We might stay on the same topic of Sloane Stevens or uh, Jeannie Bouchard, maybe, or somebody. But there's a lot of talk going around. Billie Jean King, I heard her say this the other day. The men should stop playing five best of five sets at Grand Slams and play best two of three.
1: What do you think of that? Oh, there's a couple of journalists as well, pretty high-profile ones who fall into the same camp with this argument. And you know what, man? I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it at all. We've got these four really special tournaments we play each year, and there are just four tournaments where we play best of five sets. We play at Australian Open, Roland Garros, Wimbledon, US Open. What makes these things memorable is these epic encounters that swing back and forth, these matches where it looks like one guy's gone out in front and the other guy cu- gets back to him, then he goes out in front and then the first guy comes back and then boom you're in this fifth set four hours later, both guys are absolutely dying out there on the court, but they're still hitting ridiculous shots, hitting winners, getting balls at the you know that you just wouldn't believe who we're getting in the fifth set. It's, it's, it's an incredible feat of endurance, an incredible feat of skill. It's tactical. It is an absolute spectacle to watch. I mean, you've been there, I've been there. We've been on Arthur Ashe. We've been on Lewis Armstrong. I've been on Centre Court. You know, all these places, these grand arenas. And you're watching these incredible matches between two guys, bottling it out for hours to get the best of the other guy—it's—it's it's just a phenomenal thing. And to try and condense that down to best two out of three, you know, it's—it's it, it's like anyone can win the first set. I—I I feel in a lot of occasions because they're fresh. And when you won the first set, if they win the second set on a tiebreaker or something, you're gone. You're gone. It's not the best player winning then. I I think it's it's about attrition, about being able to manage yourself, and there's just so much drama in a in a best of five sets tennis match that you just don't get in the the best of three sets that we see every week. And I think that's what makes these events so special.
0: You hit it right on the head. You know something the players probably wouldn't mind so much. Rafael Nadal is one of those that would mind because he knows that he's fit in the fifth set. And he can go out and take care of business, but I'm not so sure. A lot of these guys are fit enough to do that, what he's able to do and what Novak Djokovic is able to do, and Roger Federer used to be able to do. Without the, with, If these things were two out of three, we don't have these fantastic memories of Borg and McEnroe. Alex Karecha Pete Sampras. Pete Sampras barfing. Courage cramping. They didn't have a trainer call back then. <laughs> That was a fantastic match, and if you get a chance to watch it on ESPN Classics before the U.S. Open, that that still brings goosebumps. I was at that match. I can tell you that the fifth set, this is what separates the men from the boys, so to speak, is winning a Grand Slam, being able to play five sets. The fifth set tiebreaker at the U.S. Open. Wimbledon, okay, I don't always agree with it, but winning by two games in the fifth set, and those monsters like a John Isner and a... Uh, mahout those things would never happen if they took away this uh, took away the best of five and so wouldn't you do that though Craig what happens to the girl lady side is it is, is is it a poorly constructed argument in favor of equal pay is that what they're trying to do
1: I don't know if that's what they're trying to do or if they're looking at these other sports like cricket where they've got this kind of long form of cricket that lasts five days <laughs> these test matches. Right. And, you know, then they have this oh, one-day cricket. Now they've condensed it down to sort of like two-hour-long games. Is that what they're trying to do with tennis? Or they trying to shorten it? So do they believe that the attention span of the fan is so low that you got to shorten the match to like an hour? You know, I, I, after this, are we just going to s- suggest that they maybe play... I don't know, two sets and then after that to play a tiebreaker or something? Or or maybe we don't want to even do that. Maybe we just want to have you know four games in a set or something. Or an
0: eight-game pro set like they do in some NCAA tournaments.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's just have that that, that one pro set and then we're done. I I don't know. I just feel like these days there's too many people looking to condense sports down into like an hour long and for me that's... you, You take the soul out of the sport. You take what was... Part of the contest away by. I don't know if it's just just lack of attention or whatever. You know, if people have not got time for it, don't come down to watch the tennis. Go watch something else. You know, the, I'm sure there's sports for you somewhere where they play it in an hour and you can go away again. But uh, you know, don't ruin my tennis.
0: <laughs> well, they, they they've done a good job of ruining the U.S. Open, I think. But that's it for another topic next year, Craig. I, I'll try to leave it be the rest of the day. But yeah, I think that you have to leave things alone. I, I think. At the end of the day like I said most of the players would probably want that because that' would be an easier day for them condensing tennis how can you do that? that that's ridiculous they they try it with baseball they they've even you know they go out there and they have that timer for the serves in between serves that they'd hardly ever enforce there's just no way around it you just can't do it you can't mess with the last good tradition that tennis has in the men's side you just can't do it. But you know what they're trying to do now, Craig? And these, are, these are, I think we set this up pretty good this week. They're trying to do away with the Davis Cup. They've been trying to do away with Davis Cup for years and years and years. And now we have what's now known as the ATP Cup. And that will be played in January in Australia. And they've already got the teams. And there's Serbia, Spain, Switzerland, Russia, Austria, Germany, Greece, Japan, Italy, France, Belgium, Croatia, Argentina, Georgia, Georgia. They wouldn't get in there anyway else. South Africa, USA, Taylor Fritz, (laughs) Canada, Great Britain, Andy Murray, dude. And then the wild card, of course, is Australia. And the king of all wild cards, Nick Kiergos, is going to represent them. What do you think of this? Is this something that's good for the sport
1: no, not really, <laughs> and and neither's the new Davis Cup. I mean, this is this sits alongside the Davis Cup. The Davis Cup's still going. It's just, uh, you know, they're gonna play all the matches within a week or something. Now, it's yes. I, I don't know. This is just like what we were talking about two minutes ago with the best of five thing. They're trying to change things, and they you know they've got this idea that if everybody's in the same place, they'll have this big party all week long with all these different countries there and people will come to the one location and it'll be amazing and and i'm just you know I, I don't see it i don't see it with the davis cup they should have left it well alone it was fantastic it was unique there was nothing else like it in the world i just don't see it with this atp cup this is another gimmick this is another attempt to make money it's another exhibition um it doesn't mean anything to me it, uh, it goes up there with this Labor Cup thing that's coming on this week as well. It's another new addition and something I just sort of rolled my eyes at. It. Another glorified exhibition. And, you know, one minute we're complaining that there's, there's too many tournaments, the tour lasts too long, everyone's too tired, and then we, we're adding in all these tournaments and getting the players to play in all these things as well. It, it, just, it doesn't stack up to me at all. Yeah,
0: and it also weakens the other events that are held in Australia at that time. Those pre- australian open tournaments that usually draw in some good players maybe this is uh the exhibition they're talking about but you know i get it i get why they want to do it but they're offering atp points this way they're going to get these guys to play but this isn't a world group because george is in it now who is nicholas Balashavi and alexander metrovili who are these guys you know they wouldn't play in a, normally play in the top division of the davis cup in the world group and that's still going on. So does that mean that these guys are going to dust off their uh, obligations to their Davis Cups and, and play? And now they're going to do an extra thing. So what I think this is going to end up being is nothing more than a glorified exhibition. I mean, they're going by rankings of these American players or and all of them. Really? It just doesn't make sense, Craig. You know, Davis Cup, maybe they need to change some things. Maybe they need to have it every two years. Maybe they just need to have one week where they play it. But to go out there and just start a new thing, and to spite the ITF because the ATP guys didn't get their way with their ideas on how to fix Davis Cup, I think it's a bad idea for tennis. I think you're going to water down some great tournaments because of it, I don't think this is going to be that big a deal. And Davis Cup is going to get weakened even further because some guys are just going to say, I've already played too much. That's what I think.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely where we are. And it's, it's a shame for me because it is one of the periods of the season that I do quite enjoy is when the players first come back and they go to Brisbane and then they go to Sydney and they go to um, all these places, you know, Prior to going to the Australian Open, you're getting your first glimpse of guys, uh, how, how they're looking ahead of the Open. You, you get a, a good eye in for, for who's going to hit form. And um, now you're not going to have a clue because you're going to be watching this exhibition where these top guys are, well, I don't really think they're going to be trying particularly hard because the Australian Open is going to be within like a couple of weeks. So you're not really going to get much of a, a feel of how these guys are hour ahead of the Australian open is just going to be a sort of another spectacle for tv and another sort of cash grab from the atp
0: there you go you know what though and that's the case they need to go to win daily sports subscribe for 20 bucks a month and i'll keep you up to date on all the tennis happenings you can make some cash with a flash you can find craig over on twitter at CD sports Media, and you can find me at cash with flash For Craig Doyle, I'm Phil Nasons, We want to thank you for listening to This Week in Tennis.